explaining and answering questions for us that might come up. He certainly was addressing uh, questions that had already come up in the early church, questions about who the Christ was, and he's answering those. And so now in these last five verses, it's not that it's completely a summary statement, but he is landing the plane, as, as it were. He's, he's bringing some things into summation, but he's really writing these things to provide closure to the prologue, but it's still this introduction that is setting the stage for, for us as his readers to go on and be introduced to the life and ministry of Jesus through his gospel. So he's, he's writing that with this mind of, of, here's the introduction, this is who I'm introducing to you, and now I'm going to give you this narrative, these stories of Christ. Where in the earlier verses of the, the prologue, he has emphasized the deity of Jesus, the light of salvation that he brings in giving us life, now he unfolds his humanity, that we might understand how Jesus, both God and man, might be our mediator, might bridge the gap between God and man. And the clear theme, I hope, stood out to you this morning as we read it, the, probably the most repeated word, I didn't count, it's there four or five times, but the word grace is clearly a theme that John is focusing on here in these verses, this unmerited favor that is given to us by God. The word favor is not a word that we use uh, much in our day unless we're asking someone a request. Typically when we say, would you do me a favor, that's how we use the word. Unless, I've observed, we're going before someone who has the power over us to determine something about our lives. And then at least in the Christian community, we'll pray, would you, would you pray for, for so-and-so to, to grant me favor? It's like this, this reserved word in our use of the language. We, we don't normally use it, but when we do, it's in that case. That we recognize that there's someone who has the power over us. They, we want them to show us kindness in some way, or I, I guess if we're honest, what we really want is for them to do what we want, right? I mean, if it's going before the government office to be granted a permit because maybe all of the rules aren't quite clear or there's something unique about our situation and we need a uh, kind of a special dispensation, we would pray for favor that this person might give us the stamp of approval or if it's going to the doctor and we need some kind of, uh, again, special treatment and we need the doctor's approval, we might pray for favor in doing this. I remember when we were overseas and our... our Tourist visas had run out, and we were in the process of getting our residential cards. It was this kind of experience, and there was, um, there was a lot of stress around it because you didn't, they didn't just hand out residence cards in Cyprus. And so you had to go through all of these steps. And so we, and by we, I mean Leslie, gathered all of the necessary paperwork. And, and when I mean all, I mean it was this, you know, it was a huge folder and you had to show that you were there, that you had a lease, that you had a bank account, that you had references, that you were a good candidate for the residential process. And we uh, hired a representative who would go through all of the paperwork and, and help us and go with us. But what it came down to was walking into a little office with a single desk and one person who had the stamp in their hand who could determine whether we would be granted that residence card or not. And you had no idea <laughs> because it, some people got it and some people didn't. And so you prayed for God's favor. Well, we can all relate to such situations where we get butterflies in our stomachs waiting for someone with human power who has the ability to determine our future to grant us favor. But the favor of God is not granted to us because we got all our paperwork together. It's not granted to us because we presented our best case. 
We come with empty hands or we don't come at all. It is all grace. Or to use John's words, grace upon grace. It is simply a gift of his love that he has made us his children. And for the people of God before the coming of the Messiah, it was still grace through which they were saved by faith, but it was different in that they had not seen the revelation that came in the person and work of Jesus. And how Jesus made the Father known, they did not yet see. If, As Paul said, we see through a glass dimly on this side of the cross, they saw even more dimly. You know, they saw shadows, they saw types, they saw from far away. I've used the uh, illustration of, of like light coming from around the corner of a building. No figure, no shape, no definition. It was further off. I remember doing some night photography trying to capture the, uh, the Milky Way. And I set myself up facing the south. I knew where the Milky Way was because there's these little apps that will tell you where it is. Um, it was a winter night. It was cool. It was clear. Uh, facing south, nothing in front of me but dark ocean. All the light was behind me. And so I thought this was the perfect situation. Set my camera up on a tripod. But after opening the lens for about 30 seconds, I noticed on the images these little orbs of light on the horizon. And I didn't know what they were at the time, but someone later told me that they were likely either oil rigs or ships with large lights on them that were over the horizon. You couldn't see them with the naked eye, but when you open the camera up and let the lens stay open for a long time, it would perceive these and show these these, uh, orbs. In the same way that I couldn't really see the Milky Way very well with my naked eye, but when I open the lens for 30 seconds, then all of a sudden the Milky Way becomes clear. Well, in a similar way, our Old Testament parents in the faith could not see with the clarity, and this is what makes the light of Christ so important for us. As we read this morning that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The Word came to reveal the grace of God in fullness for us so that we might know Him, be forgiven by Him, and find favor as sons and daughters through faith. And so now looking in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God did not stop being God in any way when He donned human flesh. He came as fully God and fully man in perfect union, which is, at the end of the day, still mysterious for us. But His existence didn't begin at His birth, because as we've already seen, He is eternal. But rather, He put on flesh to dwell among mankind. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 8 states, The Son of God, being very and eternal God, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin." So he was no less God in his advent, neither was he any less human, being born under sin in the flesh, or as we sing, in frail humanity, yet he was without any sin in him. The word for dwelt is the word for tent or home. He made his home. He put on a tent of a body. Uh, He made his home among us. He became one of us. The word can also be translated tabernacle. I think this is likely what the gospel writer had in mind when he wrote his gospel, that he's thinking back to the dwelling of God with man in the tabernacle. That's what God said to his people in Exodus 25, 8, let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And we see in the tabernacle a lot of rich imagery that points forward to the coming Messiah. You might think of the lampstand that signals that the Messiah would come as the light of the world, or the table of showbread that points that he would be the, 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 the bread of life, the 
the bread of life coming down from heaven that far, was far superior to the manna that the people received in the wilderness. The altar points to the sacrifice that he would make as the Lamb of God who would himself take away the sins of the world. And of course, the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat, God's earthly throne would be opened through the death of Christ for all who trust him to then boldly approach that throne as we've been invited to do so. And so the tabernacle was the place where the people of God met with him and they witnessed his Shekinah glory so that in the same way Jesus now shows us what that glory looks like fully, that we might meet with God fully in the person of Christ. John then adds, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. The glory that John's speaking of here is this eyewitness account. That's the language he's using, that he and the other disciples were eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry, and that glory included the incarnation itself, that God became a man and dwelt among us, sending the Son. It also includes his work, the signs and wonders. That's typically what we might think of. The teachings of Jesus would also fall in this. We might think of his baptism when John the Baptist witnessed the the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. He heard the voice of the Father from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We might think of the transfiguration. Even in his death we see his glory, but especially in the resurrection and his ascension in heaven do we see his glory. And so the Apostle John testifies as an eyewitness that he and the others who were eyewitnesses with him saw the glory of Jesus, and he now bears witness to us in his gospel that we might know who Christ is. It's very similar to what he wrote in his first epistle. When he opened it there, he said, that which was from the beginning, he adds more language, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which are, we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The final designation he adds in verse 14 is that he came full of grace and truth. When Moses asked God, now show me your glory in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, God replied to him, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. D.A. Carson notes that God's glory then is supremely his goodness. That when Moses asked to see God's glory, God responded, I will show you my goodness. And that's exactly what happens in the next verses. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so the Lord, when when asked to see His glory, the Lord reveals His goodness, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness, to which Carson notes, the glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded His name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth, was the very same glory John and his friends saw in the Word made flesh. And so John now writes to us that we might see the same thing, that we might see grace and truth coming together because the truth alone would leave us helpless and hopeless and grace without truth would be meaningless. But together they present to us 
the hope of the gospel. And then in Christ alone, we can be forgiven by this gracious and compassionate God, forgiven of wickedness, forgiven of rebellion, forgiven of our sins. And then in verse 15, he inserts this parenthetical phrase referring to John the Baptist here about his testimony. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is what we looked at last week and we kind of snuck down and peeked at verse 15 a little bit because of the connection. But John the Baptist came as the prophet to announce the coming Messiah, to prepare the way. And although the Baptist was born about six months before John the Gospel writer, he claims here that Jesus was before him and also that he ranks before him. And this was demonstrating the eternality of Jesus, that he has always existed and he is therefore God. And also his rank is above John because he is the Son of God. The prophet Isaiah had foretold John the Baptist's work in, his, uh, in chapter 40 of Isaiah. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I found this quote from Aegidius Hunnius, a theologian during the Reformation, whose name I probably just butchered. But this is what he wrote of John the Baptist. That he would go heroically before the Messiah in the spirit of Elijah, with his voice raised by preaching in the desert like a resounding trumpet, to begin that true year of Jubilee, that is, the time of the New Testament. What then does the Baptist cry? He says, This is he of whom I spoke to you. Here is the one whom I, John, as a herald of the new covenant, indicate to be present with pointed finger. This one, I say, is the one of whom I spoke to you. And so now the Apostle John is setting before us with this unquestionable clarity that the prophet John the Baptist has testified, Jesus is the Messiah. Then he turns back to expand upon this notion of grace that he's introduced. In verses 16 and 17, he says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There are a number of different thoughts on the phrase grace upon grace because it can, the word that's, uh, the Greek word that's in between grace there can also mean instead of, and so there's been different uh, attempts to explain this. One suggestion is that he's setting up the law gospel distinction that he's about to unfold in in verse 17. Some believe that this is the speaking of the grace that Christ brought and then later the grace we would receive from his Holy Spirit. But the context, I think, seems to prefer that from his fullness... This is how he's speaking of grace, that grace is overflowing or unending because of that phrase, from his fullness. So I think grace upon grace is the better English understanding of what John is explaining here, and it doesn't help to bolster my case that this is Luther's take. He wrote, Whoever does not acknowledge Christ and believe in him and does not make him his or her own is and remains a child of wrath and of damnation, no matter what that person is called or what that person is. But if a person is to find mercy, Christ alone must be the means. He alone makes us paupers rich with superabundance, expunges our sins with his righteousness, devours our death with his life, and transforms us from children of wrath, tainted with sin, hypocrisy, lies, and deceit into children of grace and truth. Whoever does not possess this man possesses nothing. And what do we really receive? Grace on grace, or grace upon grace. John speaks of two types of grace, Luther goes on. Christ's grace is the unfathomable well and chief fountain of all grace. He called this Christ's fullness. 
And ours is that grace which we draw from Christ, which He distributes among us and which He gives for His mercy's sake to render us pleasing and agreeable to God. Thus, St. John diverts us from any reliance on self and from any confidence in our own work and merit, and He directs us to the mercy of Christ and to the love of God. You see, it's all Christ. It's all grace upon grace. It's the overflowing fountain. There's no contribution that we bring to the equation. We come with empty hands. Christ's grace is our source. And it's not only our source in salvation, but it is our source throughout our lives. And indeed, for eternity, we will sing the praises of Christ's grace. In verse 17, he does point to this law and gospel distinction that becomes clear in the new covenant. The law given through Moses is by grace. It was a gift of God's grace that he gave the law to his people. It shows them and us his holiness. It shows us our inability to keep it, and thus our need to be redeemed from our transgressions of it. And it also showed them and us how to live. But the gospel could, or the law could not save. The law was powerless to save. It wasn't its job. It's not its purpose. If somebody could keep the law perfectly, they would need not be saved from anything. The law is good, but it doesn't save. Yet the law comes first. It must come first, not just historically, but even in our understanding. We must come and be confronted by the law before we can understand the gospel. We have to first understand God's holy standard from the law, and secondly, we've transgressed that holy standard in breaking the law. And then we can see how the law requires both justice and justification, which we realize we can't accomplish ourselves. We need someone to do that for us. And that someone is who John is presenting here, the Messiah who brought grace and truth to us in his coming. What is the grace and truth? Well, the grace is that unmerited favor of God that he bestows upon us in Christ, through Christ, first through his revelation, but especially through his redemption. And the truth is connected to both of these, but it also reflects how Jesus brings into full light or sharper focus, we might think, all that the law pointed to in types and shadows. When we understand who Christ is, when we understand what Christ has accomplished, the Old Testament becomes uh, fresh and alive in a new way. We see things that had not been clear and they become clear. We realize that he is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world, that he is the bread of life from heaven who's come to feed us, that he is the good shepherd who leads us and rescues us, that he is the true king who has come to sit on David's throne forever and ever. And so as we understand Christ, the Old Testament now becomes clearer and we understand all that this was pointing to. John then closes his prologue with this, No one has ever seen God, the only God who sits at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So the one who brought grace and truth is the Son of God who reveals to us the Father in perfect light and clarity. So we see from His opening words, In the beginning was the Word, right? Taking us back to Genesis, uh, to our own origins. And now through these words, He has made Him known, I think is a clear reflection of what we see in Revelation 22.4. Looking forward, we're seeing a picture of us in heaven. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. If this was John's intent, and he doesn't tell us, so I'm guessing, but it looks like an inclusio to me. An inclusio is that literary device that, that he used in Revelation. We've seen it in Genesis and Jeremiah. It's a Hebrew literary device that serves as bookends to a text. 
And here I think that we don't have to strain to see it. That the Word who is eternal was in the beginning, having made all that there is, and now He has come to make, uh, make known to us that we might know Him by coming in the flesh, being made right before the triune God so that we might know our God face to face, that we might one day see Him. The word that John uses, which we read in the English as made him known, is from the Greek word exegesado, which is where we get our word exegesis or exegete. And exegesis is the work of explanation. It's, it's half of the job of the preacher every Sunday to take the text and explain the text. Hopefully you pick up, that's what I'm trying to do every week if I'm doing my job right. The other half, of course, is to proclaim Christ. And so I kind of joke that it's the same sermon every week. I explain the text and proclaim Christ. That's my job. And so this is, this, is, this is what exegesis is. It is that explanation. So the way the Father decides to reveal or explain himself to us is by sending his Son to exegete him to us and to save us. This is what John says in his first letter. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Jesus said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He reveals the Father to us. And so John is writing this clear and, again, logical introduction or prologue to us that sets the stage that we might know quite clearly that Jesus is the one who all the prophets foretold, who has been promised from long ago, this is the one. But his his objective is, remains the same. As we saw from the very beginning, John tells us why he wrote his his, uh, gospel account. In chapter 20, verse 31, written these things that you might believe, that by believing in his name you may have life. That's what John wants us to see. He wants us not just to know historical truth. He wants us to know who Christ is, that we might have life. And through life we are granted to become sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges. Advent is the coming of this light that shines in the darkness, the king who has come to establish a kingdom that will know no end. The king comes in light because he is the light, the very glory of the Most High. And the king shows that his glory is his goodness as he arrives full of grace and truth. And our king comes to bring about our redemption and adoption so that we are now co-heirs with him receiving all the royal benefits of sons and daughters. We now know grace upon grace in our lives as his children. But this doesn't mean that our lives are free from problems because we certainly know better. Our world is still wrecked by sin. Our hearts, though redeemed and alive to God, still struggle with sin. Our bodies know the effects of the curses of the fall as we all face decay and death. And yet there is grace Grace for us that is endless as we face any and every struggle and hardship. Hendrickson writes, The grace is like the waves that follow one another upon the seashore, one taking the place of another constantly. But sometimes we have trouble seeing that, don't we? Our eyes get blurry. We struggle to see in the world that we live in our own hurt and frustration, our suffering, our pain even our own struggle against sin. We understand this physically, especially as we age. I've noticed I can't read as long clearly throughout the day that during the latter parts of the day I'm straining more. Or driving, I used to drive, be able to drive a lot longer in a day before everything became blurry and fuzzy. And the same thing happens to us spiritually. 
where we fail to grasp, fail to see clearly, often because of discontentment, the great greatness of his grace toward us. And yet Jesus remains with us, before us, ready to lavish upon us more grace. He's not reluctant. Yet what we often want or desire isn't necessarily the grace that we need. We often think of grace as gifts to be possessed. I know that probably what I pray for the most is for God to respond to a specific thing. I want it addressed, right? And it's, a, it's like a gift, something I can possess. Why won't you address this thing? Or maybe we want some kind of alleviation from pain and suffering. Or maybe we want it that for a loved one. We long for that. None of this is bad. Yet in the fullness of his wisdom and perfection, his grace may come in ways that are unexpected and at times unappreciated. And so, you know, like kids at Christmas, they look at the presents under the tree. They don't know what's behind the wrapping paper. But kids are confident that it's going to be great. That's why they're so excited. If you remember back to when you were a kid, you didn't know, well, in most cases, you didn't know, in my house, if you found out the gift was supposedly had to go back, but you didn't know what was behind the wrapping paper, but it was so exciting that it kept you up at night. It was so exciting that your body could wake up before your body could ever wake up on a normal morning, and you had more energy than you ever did on a normal morning because you were confident that what was behind the paper was going to be great. So may we as the children of our loving God come to the unending fountain of grace with that same expectation and with faith that he will give abundantly all that we need and even more. For God so loved the world that he sent his son, the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us to lay down his life for us that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We who walk in darkness deep now see the light of morning. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace, a child to us is born. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Behold the Lamb of God, the life and light of men. Behold the Lamb of God who died and rose again. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away our sin. Let's pray. Father, we behold your light in the person of Jesus Christ, and yet we confess our behold.